We are in a series on Leviticus. Let me say a prayer and we'll get right into the teaching on the year of Jubilee from Leviticus chapter 25. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And to all of my uh, friends um, here, uh, Lord, I send to you my gratitude and just so thankful to be in community with these amazing people. Um, God, even though I might be doing all of the talking, I know that there's so many beautiful conversations and ideas that live and thrive in this community. Um, God, and I pray that even today as we learn and discover and dig a little bit deeper into this concept, into these teachings, that you would spark within us again new ways of thinking, new ways of believing, uh, new ways of behaving in this world that facilitates more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray in your name. And everybody said, amen. Leviticus chapter 25. Uh, for those of you who are joining us new or have just recently joined us, we've been charting through the Bible, the Christian Bible from Genesis, and then there was Exodus, and now we're in Leviticus, and we're getting to the tail end of Leviticus, so there's a lot of teachings that have preceded all of this. We've now made our way to chapter 25 of Leviticus, and if you remember from a couple weeks ago, we're skipping over a couple portions of Leviticus simply because some of it may not necessarily be all that appropriate for this particular context. You can read some of those passages, and also because some of it is redundant. Chapter 25 is going to introduce us to the concept and the idea of jubilee, and I would like to read that passage and get to sharing some reflections on that. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, sound the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow, do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. 50th year, celebration of jubilee. After these verses come some bullet points and some explanations and some fleshing out of these particular of this particular idea. Everyone is to return to his own possessions. This beautiful statement, don't take advantage of one another. Conduct commerce according to this calculation. In other words, if land is going to be returned to somebody at the 50th year, let's say you're in the 27th year, calculate out to the 50th year and make sure that when you are doing a lease, or when you're doing a loan, or when you're doing debt management, make sure you take that into consideration. Make sure you do that commerce according to that calculation. Once again, don't take advantage of one another. Live safely in the land. These are really beautiful statements to this ancient culture, to these ancient people who are trying to figure out how to now live in this world. The land is mine, and you are foreigners and strangers. We're going to touch on this a little bit, that the Israelites came in to inhabit a particular piece of property, but here in Leviticus, when it comes to property management, you actually don't own it. You are actually foreigners and strangers, because the land itself actually belongs to the Lord. 
provide for the redemption of the land. In other words, don't just redeem the people and the animals, but also provide redemption, Sabbath for the land, which is what precedes a little bit of the passages that we just read. Don't take interest or any profit from them, from the people that you are loaning to. And I love this. What's the contrary? What's the reason and the rationale why you shouldn't charge interest? Fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. Verse 39 goes on to say, If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you, do not make them work as slaves. They are to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you. They are to work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then they and their children are to be released, and they will go back to their own families, their own clans, and to their own property, their own land of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. And then this closing segment. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released, freed, liberated in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. All right, so what does this mean? I've entitled this message, You Don't Owe God Anything. You Don't Owe God Anything. This concept of the year of Jubilee has manifested itself into lots of different names. Many of you know that right down the street is a place called Jubilee Christian Center. It's one of the most prominent mega churches here in the Bay Area. There's also a lot of different other Christian organizations, Jubilee Christian School, Jubilee Academy, Jubilee Christian Fellowship. And then, of course, there's different other popular culture references, Jubilee Chocolate, Jubilee Restaurant. And I have no idea who this person is. I'm so sorry. For those of you who like Comic-Con, you guys get the joke. I just Googled Jubilee, and this is what came up. So I figured this means something to somebody, yes? Yeah, I, I know. I've totally offended you right now by having no clue. I have no clue who this person is, and I just want to apologize right now. I know that I've offended you. Ter- terribly sorry. Apparently, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much. See, grace is needed and extended. It's the year of Jubilee for me right now as a result. Now, the word Jubilee in Hebrew is the word Yovel. Now, the word Yovel actually means trumpet, And here's what happens in a little bit of history. You're at Spark, so we geek out every now and then. And this is important for us to understand really what's going on in the text. What happened in the translation is that the Hebrew translation, Yovel, got transliterated, which means you take the Y and you put it into a Y, you take the O, you put it into an O in the receptor language in Greek, and it becomes Yobeleos in Greek. Yobeleos in Greek looks like the word jubileo in Latin, and so it got associated. The Latin word means to shout and to have jubilation, to have excitement, but the original Hebrew word actually means trumpet, to blow a blast. In fact, we just read it. During the year of jubilee, you are to actually blow a trumpet uh, during the Day of Atonement. 
And when that trumpet sounds, because this passage has now been spread throughout the land and spread through the Israelites, they know something really significant has happened. They know that that trumpet sound means freedom. It means liberation. And some translators translate the word release. They've been released. What a beautiful picture and image of what's going on. Now, the way in which this is instituted is that you're first supposed to count off Sabbath uh, years. So every year you go, you harvest your land, you harvest your land, you harvest your land. But then every seventh year, you're supposed to take a Sabbath year and let the land lie fallow. We talked about this very briefly. We went over it very quickly, that not only are you supposed to give yourself rest, but then you're also supposed to give your animals rest. But then you're also supposed to give the land rest, an opportunity to recover and to rejuvenate itself. Um, There's a lot of commentary. I'm sure many of you um, who actually know a little bit more about agrarian culture and societies know that this is actually good for the land, and it causes the land to stay fertile. And again, all of this is for life. And sometimes we look at these numbers and we think about, boy, this is like so many religious details and so many religious uh, requirements. A lot of this is really intertwined deeply in the way that the land actually works and how life is actually sustained. And so what Leviticus is often doing is codifying, putting down into words what many people in the ancient world already knew was necessary and needed. And now it was dictated because some people, I don't know if you know this, but some people have a tendency to overdo it sometimes and overproduce and overconsume. I, I don't know too many cultures that do that, but there are, there are people that have a tendency to do this, so setting this in law is really important. Then you're supposed to ca- count off the seven sevens, uh, the seven uh, years to the 49th year, and that 50th year is supposed to be the blowing of the trumpet, and you are to declare throughout the land the year of Jubilee. So, this is what it sounds like. And here's what you're feeling right now. You've just been in debt. The land is difficult to sustain. And so you've been borrowing money from another person. You've trying to pay that person back. You're trying to live and feed your children. But the debt just keeps getting bigger and bigger and interest is piling higher and higher, and rather than getting freer and freer, you're actually digging yourself deeper and deeper into debt. So when you hear this sound, in this time, you're like, all of that debt that just keeps accumulating, now I get to go free, and I get to go back to my family, I get to go back to my land, I get to be restored to my community with Without being enslaved to another person. Without the oppression of somebody else telling me, I actually own you because I have given you something. I have saved you financially. I have brought you out of economic distress as a result. So when you hear this, you think, freedom. How many of you have paid off a credit card? And that last payment that you sent off to that creditor was like, yes, if only I had a shofar trumpet, if I could just blow it, call up customer service, right into customer service's ear, right? This is the feeling. 
And for some of us, I think this is kind of hard to understand. Let me see if I can put some other illustrations upon it. Imagine yourself, you have a close relative, maybe it's a parent, a grandparent, or an uncle or an aunt, and they pass away. And after their passing, you realize or you find out they had had actually accumulated some debt because of how they were living or because of circumstances or whatever. And as a result of the way that the laws work and as a result of the way creditors are, that debt that once was owned by that relative because you are next in line now gets attributed to you. And not only are you carrying the weight and the burden of your own finances, now you are carrying the weight and the burden of the deceased's debt. But you never budgeted for this. You don't make enough money for that. You haven't figured out life in a way that can manage that debt in addition to your own living. And so what do the creditors do? They just keep piling on more fees. Oh, you're late again. Here's another fee. Well, not only is there a late fee, but now there's an extra interest charge because you're late. And slowly over time, rather than getting freer and freer, you are actually becoming more and more enslaved. And you're looking for a way out. You're looking for somebody to say, somebody, please get me out of this. And what do they say? Well, hey, listen, I'm just following the rules. I'm just following the laws. I am fully permitted to behave this way. Why? Because, hey, it's the free market. And by the way, it's not my fault you're in the situation that you're in. I might as well take advantage of the situation. I might as well take advantage of the fact that this debt is outstanding and I can make some money on this. Now imagine something maybe a little bit more foreign to some of us. Your entire life's sustenance is dependent upon water, the land producing, your animals producing, your crops bearing fruit. And then all of a sudden a drought comes through and decimates uh, your crops and you can't live anymore. And as a result of this, somebody next door, a neighboring country, maybe even somebody across the river, who does have water, who has wealth, who has riches, decides in some sort of compassionate way, or maybe not so compassionate way, to loan you food or to loan you money so that you can survive. But that person that you have now just taken that loan out from realizes that they have you. And as a result of the absence of any regulation, the absence of any law, they say, well, I don't mind feeding your family but you will now come into my family, but not as a family member, but as a servant and as a slave. And you will keep working and working and working until I say you have paid off this debt. Now, if you were in any of these situations, and by the way, I can imagine many of us have at one particular point felt this way or are currently in that situation. The number of people that I've talked to that discuss their student loans, and if you take a look at the numbers regarding college and education, as they are just expanding, I can imagine more and more of us are more and more on board with, yeah, we get it. And if you're in that situation, and if you're feeling this kind of pressure, and the weight of that makes you feel as if you are just going to be indebted to somebody else for the rest of your life, which is not just a financial debt, but it's also a humanitarian debt where it's like, I don't even know if I have my own identity, my own autonomy anymore, into that, 
What are you waiting for? What are you hoping for? What are you yearning for? Somebody to come in and say, a different law, a different way, a different behavior can be had that protects both the creditor and the debtor, that allows everyone to still live in the land, that allows even the poor among us to live and have dignity and have identity and have a home. That's what we are asking for. That's what we're hoping for. And cultures way back then, as well as cultures today, see very, very clearly how financial and economic systems can be easily leveraged for the rich to get richer and the poor to get poorer. And into that system, Leviticus comes and says, there needs to be a reset button. There needs to be a time when we say, this is hurting us, this is hurting our fellow brothers and sisters, this is hurting our community. There's actually a story of this that happened. Later on, after Leviticus is written, there's a guy by the name of Nehemiah. Some of you know this story. The Jewish people have been actually taken out of their land. Uh, through all, the course of a variety of historical events, they come back to the land and they're now rebuilding everything, including the walls of Jerusalem and the city. But in the midst of that, some people have taken advantage of the fact that some people have left so I get to acquire this land, and now they're coming back, and now they're into this debt cycle again. And this story is recounted about how Nehemiah looks at this and says, hold on a second, people. We have a way of living that is different from the way you're doing this. Read this. Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry against their fellow Jews. Some were saying, we and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Still others were saying, we have had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our fellow Jews, and though our children are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Do you hear the plight? Feel the pain? Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. And here's Nehemiah's response. When I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. Haven't you read Leviticus? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our fellow Jews who were sold to the Gentiles. Now you are selling your own people only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending the people money and grain, but let us stop charging interest. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the interest you are charging them. One percent of the money, grain, new wine, and olive oil. And listen to what they did. We will do it. We will give it back, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. At this, the whole assembly said, amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did 
as they had promised. That story is deeply ingrained with the famous story that we hear of the rebuilding of the walls and Nehemiah putting the army back together. What is also true about the story of the people coming back to Israel is that the economic system that people were taking advantage of was also reformed through the prophets. And how people were behaving economically and how they were taking advantage of one another, that also needed to be redeemed. Does any of this resonate with our day? Does any of this sound familiar? And the answer absolutely should be yes. Some people ask, well, why study the Old Testament? Why study Leviticus anymore? Because we live in a day and age in which all of this still holds true. Many years ago, some of you know this far better than I do, there was a movement called the Jubilee Movement that came from this, and it was raising awareness about the debt that other nations owed to America and other uh, first world countries. The debt and the interest that those countries were paying to us was causing those countries to become even more in disrepair, their people becoming even more impoverished. And so um, a variety of political leaders as well as pop culture leaders were getting together and declaring, we must right now in this day, it is our duty to declare a jubilee for those nations. Because even though they may owe us, it is not right what we are doing. Some of this movement can actually still be read about. You can actually still participate in this movement. There are, there are still movements alive today that are doing their very best to uh, declare to the world and to the nations that these principles of global community, of not taking advantage of your brother or your sister, not enslaving another human being by taking advantage of these systems is still alive uh, today. And then... Some of the stories get really, really personal, like this one. Humanitarian uh, workers tell us that this debt that this gentleman is going to owe, as well as uh, you know millions of others, is not going to end with him. It's going to be passed on to their children and their children's children. Into this kind of world, into this kind of reality, again, what are we crying out for? What does the world yearn for and long for? And why are these passages so brilliant, so profound, and so relevant? Someone somewhere needs to stand up and say, there is a different law, there's a different way, there's a different stipulation, there's a different command, there's a different decree, there's a different theology, there's a different way of understanding how all of this works in the world, and this is it. Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released. Let them go. Let them be free. Do not oppress your neighbors. 
and their children and their children's children. Let them be released in the year of the Jubilee. And here's why. Here's why. They don't belong to us. We belong to him. And as soon as the Israelites can make that shift and recognize we were brought out of slavery, we were bought with the price, we have ownership that comes from God that is gracious and loving, and that's our identity. Once we can solidify that position, then we look out into our fellow man and say, neither should you be enslaved. And just like the Lord freed us and delivered us and liberated us and released us, so now we see and recognize the critical importance, the value, the humanity, the theology of setting free our brothers and our sisters. I don't know how many of you have ever considered that the gospel, the good news, this biblical story has economic implications. And let me just say as a kind of a disclaimer, especially given our political climate these days, I'm not making any declarations as to how you should vote or what political system we should live in. That's a separate question. What I am saying is that there's a biblical ethic here that identifies us first and foremost as belonging to God, which then translates into nobody in this world belongs to me. And I should never enslave another person because I recognize the debt that I owe to my God. Now, let me see if I can bring this, kind of sew it up and conclude for you. Is this good news or a threat? <laughs> I want you to feel the tension. Some people don't like the year of Jubilee. Are you on board with that? If you're the landowner and if you're the creditor, you are not happy about this moment. Why? Because my income, the riches and the wealth that I am gaining now are, are soon going to be threatened. But if you're in debt, then it's good news. And the reason why I think it's important to talk about that is because whenever we talk about economics and the gospel and the church and Jesus and the, the biblical story, I know sometimes, and I'm just going to confess personally, I feel threatened. And I've had to check myself. Why do I feel threatened by this? Oh, Maybe it's because I happen to be one of those people that has benefited from the system. Maybe I'm actually in a position where I have now come to deserve what I have or feel like I am entitled to what I have. So if you're feeling a threat by the declaration that all debts go free, it's not a direct indicator, but I would it causes us to ask a question. What does that say about maybe who we are? Because the rest of the people that are in debt, people like this, the gentleman that we showed, this is good news. This is freedom. This is liberation. This is, I get my life back. Two main points to understand as a result. They are not indebted to us. We are indebted to Yahweh. We are indebted to God. And once we can first get that uh, relationship taken care of, understood, then we realize that we are free now and liberated to extend to each other the same. And let me just say this as well. Part of being a follower of Christ, part of being a follower of this biblical God is to say, 
we're not governed by market economics just because it's legal. We are governed by a hatred of injustice. This is what drove the early Israelites. This is what drives the biblical ethic. This is what drives movements. It's not that we're governed by however the systems work. It's that we are driven hard by a hatred of injustice. And we don't want to see that injustice anywhere in the world. In our own backyards, as well as in the backyards across the globe, since we are living in a globalized society. Okay, last thing. Jesus comes onto the scene approximately seven, eight hundred years later, depending upon your chronology from the time that Leviticus is written and from the time that the Declaration of the Year of Jubilee is stated. And he starts his ministry in a place called Nazareth with one of the most profound and explosive statements that you could find in the scriptures. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. Everybody knows that he's doing this exactly as he normally does. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. And here's the, here's the phrase, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In other words, the year of jubilee. In Jesus, the beginning of his ministry, he's declaring that all of the debts that have been forgiven economically throughout your system, all of that is now a picture and an image of what I am doing for everybody spiritually as well as economically, right here, right now, in all of how I am living. I am declaring to you right here in this place that today is the year of Jubilee for you. Jesus is the fulfillment and the fullest expression of what this Jubilee is. And here's how this works. I have talked to people that say things like this. My past, my sin, the things that I've done that I haven't told anybody, but I know that I've done, somehow I feel like I still carry that around, and I still owe God something as a result of my sin and my past. No, you don't. You don't owe God anything. In Jesus, you have been set free. I know people, unfortunately, in our congregation and many congregations that carry around the scarlet D, we've heard this word before, that because of some sort of indiscretion, and let's not even get into whose fault and any of that stuff, just the fact that this is your reality, you don't feel like a full human being. You cannot enter into a Christian community or religious community and be accepted and loved and welcomed until you somehow get your life straight. You don't owe God anything. This, in Jesus, is your year of jubilee. You have been set free from any of those expectations. Some of you, some of us, get hyper-religious. And if we miss a quiet time, or if we miss our Bible study, if we don't go to that conference, or we don't attend church, somehow something puts pressure on us or causes us to feel guilt or shame because we're not following through with all the religious duties that we were taught, and that somehow puts a little dark shadow over us. You don't owe God anything. You have been freed from the debt that you think you owe God because of your behavior or absence thereof. And many of us, all of us, carry around uh, labels, identities, things that we feel like we have to live up to, things that burden us and shame us, things that cause us to not express fully who we are in our humanity. You don't owe God anything. 
Because in him, all of your debts have been paid. In Jesus and in his teachings and in his life and in his ministry and in the good news, you don't owe him anything. You've been set free. Go back to your family. Go back to your land. Reclaim it. Be released. And whatever expectations or debts that other people try to heap upon you, you just remind them, he is our jubilee. Dave and the team, they're going to come out and close their For the next 60 seconds, just hear the trumpet blast. Throughout the land, in your heart and in your soul, you've been set free. You don't owe God anything. You get to return home. shame or guilt or shortcoming or sin you think you have to atone for, work for, cover over for, you don't owe God anything. sing Amazing Grace, My Chains Are Gone, and I would just encourage you um, to sit, to sing, to hold your body in whatever posture makes sense or is comfortable to you, and be free. I'd like to just close with a benediction, and the benediction is very, very simple. May we live debt-free, and may we live freeing debt. Amen?